Hello and welcome to the International History Now podcast. My name is Dina Gusenova and I'm based in the International History Department at the LSE. And I am Georgos Yanakopoulos. I teach History and Politics at City University of London and NYU in London. The musical extract is from a composition by the Turkish contemporary jazz musician Yavuz Akezesi. In this series, we are inviting guests to explore topical questions and to share their thoughts on experiences and research from around the world. On 10th July 2020, uh, the Turkish President Erdogan signed a decree declaring the Byzantine Church and UNESCO World Heritage uh, Site Hagia Sophia, located in Istanbul, as a mosque. The decree followed the decision by the Turkish Council of State which stated that the monument's conversion into a museum under Mustafa Kemal Ataturk in uh, 1934 had been unlawful. Hagia Sophia has been one of the most visited sites in Turkey. The church is important to Orthodox Christians living in Russia, Greece, and across the globe. Justifying the decree, Erdogan made references to the Ottoman conquest of the Byzantine Empire and the repurposing of the iconic church to a mosque in the 15th century. The move provoked the condemnation from a range of international voices, most notably, of course, representatives of the Orthodox Church in Greece and Russia, but also UNESCO. The liberal Turkish intelligentsia has also been highly critical of the decision. At the same time, the Russian government, for instance, acknowledged it as a legitimate act of Turkish sovereignty. With us to discuss the incident is uh, Jamil Aydin, professor of history at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill and also the author of The Idea of the Muslim World, A Global Intellectual History, which appeared with Harvard University Press in 2017. Welcome, Jimmy. We'd like to start, well, inviting you to reflect a little bit on, or share with us a little bit, your view on where modern Turkey is now. I mean, um, how should we envisage Erdogan's relationship to history? Does he see himself uh, more as an heir to the Ottoman Empire or more as an heir to um, Ataturk's modern Turkey or something completely different? How should we interpret this act in that sense? Uh, thank you, Dina and George. Um, uh, I'm glad for this opportunity. Um, well, this is, of course, a very big decision uh, because Hagia Sophia, um, Hagia Sophia in Turkish uh, is one of the most beautiful buildings. It's uh, absolutely stunning. Uh, it's also important uh, both for Muslims and Christians. Um, it had a long history as a cathedral, but it also has a very long uh, sacred history for Muslims because it was used as a mosque. Um, it was even used as a, a, a Catholic uh, cathedral uh, during the Crusaders uh, from uh, 1204 to 1261. It's a forgotten episode there. Um, but it has been a, a museum, and it was considered a very wise a very humanist decision in 1934-35. Uh, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk converted that uh, to a museum after actually uh, the mosque was closed for several years where they unearthed all the mosaics and paintings and all kind of other Christian iconography. And at that point, they decided that it was no longer necessary to use it as a mosque, but it was also important to also uh, for the history of art in general. Um, and uh, those of you who have visited the, the museum, uh, they will have realized that they, there is a mixture of Christian and Muslim art in it. Uh, there's lots of calligraphy, very beautiful calligraphy uh, in it, uh, and it was considered sacred for, for all. Uh, so then why was this decision? Why did they um, decide to turn it back into a mosque? One correction that I would like to make, uh, make is that even though this looks anti-Christian, uh, in, in the Turkish context, it's actually uh, not anti-Christian, it's more of anti-Kemalist or um, anti-secular in, in that way. And I want to use the word secular in quotation mark because uh, Kemalists were as Muslim as AK Party supporters. So they were not, uh, they haven't uh, converted this church into a mosque because they were any less Muslim. They did that while being very proud Muslims. You would say that uh, it's misunderstood in a way in the international press as a kind of foreign policy incident, but actually it's primarily an, an ideological move that's there to position Erdogan within internal Turkish um, political conflicts between conservative forces and the kind of post-Kemalist forces. Yeah. 
crisis. In terms of that monument crisis, uh, one correction is, is to, to be made is that why in the during the Cold War in the 50s and 60s, in a kind of an ideological conservative movement, fixated itself symbolically on the conversion of Hagia Sophia from a mosque into a church, um, not against the Greeks, but against the founding fathers of Turkish Republic and its secularism. There is something very irrational about this too. I mean, there is no one, there is no internal Kemalist enemy anymore. Erdogan and and majority of the Turkish population are some sort of nationalist conservative. Uh, I mean, that in some ways this conservative obsession of Hagia Sophia then has its own power that symbolically by converting this to uh, into a mosque, you achieve a reconquest of Turkey. But in reality, it, it has no corresponding value, right? I mean, there are no Greeks or Byzantines claiming to turn um, this museum into a church. Um, you get this psychological satisfaction, but I wonder what do you get anything beyond that, right? Just the sheer income from the museum revenues is huge. This is the most uh, visited museum in Turkey, about 3 million visitors a year. Each person pays 100 lira, which is not insignificant. Uh, it's about uh, $12, $13. It's also forgotten that now people can still visit this place but um, if something is not a museum but a mosque, you cannot charge money on it. So you can visit it as free. Uh, um, and technically, they are not supposed to destroy or hurt any of the mosaics and the paintings. Uh, they're supposed to do something with laser lights to create a space for Muslims to pray. I don't know how they're going to figure this out. But then outside of the prayer times, anyone can visit this free of charge. It's, it's going to be very chaotic. So, Jamil, do you see this as some kind of culture war that uh, Erdogan is waging at the moment? Yes, an internal cultural war that contradicts everything that Erdogan has and, and some of the kind of Muslim modernist or so-called Turkish Muslim internationals have been saying, because Erdogan um, was, a, was a sponsor and a co-chair of an Alliance of Civilizational Project. After September 11, I think with the Spanish Prime Minister for a while at the UN, they did this idea that the war on terror shouldn't be a war um, against Muslims. There shouldn't be any clash of civilization. In that context of the Alliance of Civilization, they could show Hagia Sophia as a good example, right? That it's a space sacred for both Muslims and, and Christians, a space of inclusive uh, museum where you could see Muslim and Christian art next to each other. And, and I should note the, the Hagia Sophia is very important uh, for as a Muslim prayer space because it has been used as the number one significant mosque. In fact, even for Kemalists, when they had a project to reform Islam, they actually uh, even used Hagia Sophia as the first place to implement it in 1931, just before they turned into a museum. Uh, the Mustafa Kemal Ataturk's uh, religious reform project used Hagia Sophia as a site to recite Quran in Turkish rather than Arabic. So in that context of, uh, of Hagia Sophia as a sacred space, you could say Mustafa Kemal's decision is a humanist decision is to say that here's a space where we can show the harmony among different religious traditions over many centuries. Um, it's a new new beginning, new opening. You can say it's a new conquest in the sense that a humanist conquest of an old space. And I should note that there is, uh, an Erdogan himself said this, when uh, he was asked to turn this into a mosque, he was resisting it for the last 10, 15 years, saying that there is no need to this. Just to remind the audience that there is a huge mosque, Blue Mosque, next to Hagia Sophia, built uh, around 16, early 1600s. And that mosque uh, is not full even in, on Friday prayer. So there is no need for, uh, uh, for pious Muslims for a new space. So it's purely symbolic in that regard. But it's symbolic in a very contradictory way that you show symbolically the end of Kemalism in Turkey, by turning Hagia Sophia uh, uh, into a mosque. But that also contradicts with everything you have been saying internationally in terms of alliance and harmony of civilization and in terms of, of an idea of a tolerant Islam in, in international community. And you, you don't regard it as some kind of way to project a certain 
image of Turkey as a Muslim country in the Muslim world? Yes, they are expecting that kind of an attention, but so far uh, we haven't seen uh, a great support for this uh, impact in, in the United States. Uh, uh, the, one of the big Muslim organizations, president of that organization, is igniting. Uh, Sayyid so Sayyid made a statement that looked very similar to uh, the statement that was done by humanist Christians or any humanist secular person saying that this is not a wise decision. Um, it's, it's very, from broader Muslims, it's very controversial because according to Islamic law, you're not supposed to uh, touch a church and convert it to a mosque, right? That um, Mehmet II makes this imperial claim, which partly contradicts uh, some interpretation of Islamic law. For example, Omar, um, Caliph Omar, when he visited, uh, when he conquered Jerusalem, when he visited uh, his conquest, he didn't even pray in in, uh, in Church of Holy Sepulchre um, with the fear that the later Muslims will then take it as a sign to tr- convert them to a mosque. So he kept it as a church. In that sense, there are lots of contradictions and there is no global Islamic world support. I mean, I argue that there is no Islamic world in that regard. And I would say beyond the small circle of, of uh, kind of pro Erdogan Muslims, uh, I haven't seen any uh, broader support for this decision from the Islamic world. That also confirms that the obsession with Hagia Sophia was an internal Turkish conservative ideological romantic move. It it had it does not have any corresponding value in the Islamic world. The implications of this legal decision is mind-bogglingly contradictory. Anyone can use it now for to convert anything they want because they argued that Mehmet II in 1453 established a, an endowment wakf, and uh, and the secular Turkish Republic cannot. Uh, cancel that waqf and its its content and its intention, which is not true, right? I mean, then we can go back to any point in the 1500s, 1600s, saying that there is a charitable endowment, and then I want the land of that charitable endowment to be used uh, based on its intent. I mean, there's there are thousands of waqfs which were then converted and changed. Um, what would be a better representative, I mean, apart from, from Atatürk himself, but what would be... Um a good kind of cultural source that would help understand what actually Kemalism is about when it comes to thinking about religion, the historical past, uh, those those kinds of questions. I mean, you've mentioned um, um, poetry of this period to understand what 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 we should think about about this fading form of consciousness. I guess. Yeah. No, this is a great question, Dina. I think uh, there are a lot of uh, misunderstood aspects of of Kemalism, uh, and we need to correct that. One of them is that the Kemalism as a project in the 20s and 30s uh, was always the trying to uh, bolster the legitimacy of the young Turkish Republic by altering the the negative image of Turks, uh, you know, the, the image of the terrible Turk. Turks are the worst Muslim in the world. So if you go back to early 1920s, the bad Muslim will be a Turk. There is not a negative image of Persians or even Arabs. At that point, the image of Arabs as, as an evil Muslim comes much later. Uh, the, the attention of, of uh, European racism towards Muslims is mainly focused on, it's broader about all Muslims, but focused on Turks. And Atatürk manages to change that image through westernization and modernization within two decades. So we, the, the Turkish uh, conservatives are saying that Look, this, this is a project of being sellout, that he wanted to be white and Western. And in order to do that, he betrayed his own Islamic tradition, which is absolutely not true. Um, in fact, uh, I, I gave the example of young Nazim Hikmet's poem in celebration of Mehmet II's uh, conquest of, of Istanbul. Is that the, the, the Kemalists uh, who were basically grew up in the late Ottoman period is a very romanticized notion of the glories and greatness of the Ottoman Empire. And in that romanticized notion, you know, similar to European romanticized notions of history and past, um, the conquest of Istanbul is glorified as a universalist act, and Mehmet II is a great warrior and hero. And I, I think the conservatives, that's why I focused on this, because it was revealing a contradiction in Kemalism, because Kemalists were very proud of at least this early Ottoman history of Mehmet II, Suleiman the Magnificent, 
um, and their greatness. And then they say the later Ottoman Empire was bad, Abdul Hamid and, and the declined empire. Um, so one uh, final note about Kemalism uh, is, and I was I want to highlight that they are not um, un-Muslim or anti-Muslim in that regard. They are just uh, there's uh, there are different Kemalisms. There's a conservative one, there's uh, you know socialist, social democratic. There are different versions of it. Atatürk was above all of them. He was a, a hero who was a savior who redeemed the oppressed nation in, in his own mind. But their relationship with Islam is much more complex. Another interesting dimension in the period, and I was wondering about your thoughts on that, and we are now in the 30s, we have the beginnings of these international organizations that later become UNESCO, for instance, you know, the language of world heritages and, and so on. So I was wondering what are your views on the reaction from international organizations such as UNESCO, the tone and you yeah. know, the substance of what they're saying? I, I could see why they will be worried, but I think eventually Turkish diplomats and the government might end up negotiating a deal. They may, I think eventually they will have some sort of an interpretation of this decision of conversion into a mosque where they are not supposed to hurt, damage, or destroy uh, Byzantine uh, era art pieces, as well as Ottoman era art pieces, right? That Ottoman era art pieces are easy, the calligraphy. Uh, pieces are there, it's engraved in gold, and uh, there are also uh, very large um, calligraphic writings of the name of God and Prophet Muhammad and the early Muslim uh, and, and caliphs. UNESCO's reaction is also confused because they don't know what will happen to this. I think the Turkish government will try to find a medium ground where they did this with a couple of other um, uh, Byzantine churches, which were museum, but then reconverted to a mosque. There's one in Nicaea. I think there's one in Trabzon. What is disturbing to a lot of uh, Turkish citizens and a lot of Muslims is that Hagia Sophia is just seen as a heritage of Christian um, uh, religious space and also Christian art, which will be a mistaken uh, assumption in this place because you know, in addition to 900-some years of, of uh, Christian space, it was also served as a Muslim prayer space. And it has Muslim art for more than 400 years. 400 years is a lot of time. This is twice the age of the United States, right? Um, so the, that I wish that people who write about these things will consider this as in, in a more inclusive space. There's a lot of narratives attached to these monuments. And, and we have to, as historians, be careful about uh, the genealogy of these narratives, how it has been historically, politically being utilized, what roles they played uh, over time. But the sometimes narratives have a power over reality in some ways. I mean, I could see in 50s and 60s why uh, anti-Kemalist opposition, uh, kind of conservative opposition, latched onto Hagia Sophia to highlight the contradictions of Kemalism. Right? They're, on the one hand, they're proud of Mehmet II and, and conquest of Istanbul as their glorious achievement. But on the other hand, they, they consider this kind of betrayal of Mehmet II's legacy. But today, I mean, it's very ironic. Today, there is no context for that kind of politicization. And then even though there's no context for it, there's some sort of power of the symbolism and the narratives come, um, come back to haunt us in, in this decision. And we need more historical intervention and more work to show the genealogy and the ugly politics behind all kinds of, of, of big narratives of today, including the narratives that disturbed me when I read the international reaction to this event, um, reaction that kind of simplified everything as, as bad Muslims um, are doing jihad again. You could equally be good Muslim and, and object to this decision, and which, which is happening in Turkey and other places as well. Jamil, many thanks. Before we move on to our second contributor, we will turn to an extract of a song by Ahmed Özhan, one of the most famous and celebrated Sufi musicians of Republican Turkey. Hey! 
now turn to our second contributor, Mark Baer. Mark is a professor of international history at the LSE. Among other books, he is the author of Honored by the Glory of Islam, Conversion and Conquest in Ottoman Europe, out by Oxford University Press. Mark, welcome to our podcast. I'd like to begin by asking your thoughts on how can the study of the Ottoman past help us to better understand the current moment? Uh, well, first, thanks for having me on the, on the broadcast. When people talk about Ottoman history, like President Erdogan the other night during his speech announcing the conversion of the museum back to a mosque, one of the words that's so often used is tolerance. The Ottomans are often promoted, as Erdogan did, as a model of tolerance. And so um, I want to talk about tolerance for just a minute or two, because tolerance, as we understand it today, is actually not the same as celebrating diversity or coexistence or equality or multiculturalism or what have you. To tolerate just means to suffer, to endure, to put up with something that's objectionable. And this tolerating party considers its own religion to be the true one, and a tolerated group's religious claims to be false. So this, this is actually what tolerance was in the Ottoman case. And tolerance, the most important thing to think about, we often get it wrong today, and Erdogan got it wrong in his speech, of course. Tolerance is actually a power relation. Its presence or absence can be wielded as a warning or threat against a, a powerless group. Tolerance is a state of inequality where the powerful party or ruler determines whether a less powerful group may exist or not, or whether they can live according to their own customs and so on. So this is how the Ottoman system was set up. It was a hierarchy. One group dominated the others, and the others were subordinated. And in other words, what you have at the same time, you have tolerance, and tolerance goes along with discrimination. So the point is that for most of its history, the Ottoman Empire, the entire social and legal order, privileged the free Sunni Muslims and men over slaves, Christians and Jews, and women. And then it's often forgotten when we talk about the Ottomans as a model of tolerance that at the end of empire, the regime withdrew its tolerance from Armenians and Assyrians and annihilated them. So it's a mistake to take the Ottomans as a, a model of tolerance without understanding or remembering first, tolerance is a power relation, and second, that tolerance is a thing that can be given but also can be taken away just as we saw in 1915, when the last Ottoman regime annihilated the Armenian population. If we were to turn the lens of tolerance to gaze at today's Turkey, what kind of trends do we begin to see? Well, again, we can go back to Erdogan's speech the other night when he announced the, the reconversion of the mosque, because on the one hand, he talked about how he was he was you know fulfilling the dream of Muslims by returning this this beautiful mosque to to um, to worship. And the other hand, again, what struck me is how he kept talking about tolerance. So in his speech, he made it clear. He pointed out how tolerant Turks are. He said that there are 454 or 453, I forget, churches today in Turkey. And what he was saying was, um, look. You know, we, we Turks can tolerate difference among us. So he was speaking of religious tolerance. But of course, it's very ironic that he's using this phrase, tolerance, this, this term tolerance, because of course, his action was to take a church and to make it into a mosque. I mean, yes, it was a museum for 86 or 84 years, however many years. But of course, this is a church. This is a Greek church uh, built by Greek Christians to be used as a church. And if Erdogan wanted to show how tolerant he really was, because there are, there may be 450 churches in Turkey, but there's tens of thousands of mosques. If he wanted to show how tolerant he was, then why doesn't he open Hagia Sophia to Christian worshipers? Just to follow up on this um, question of historicizing maybe tolerance or understanding the, the historical provenance of the term. I mean, I guess as a Europeanist, I'm much more familiar with this discourse of toleration coming from the sort of Reformation era and, and early modern period like Locke. Um, 
sort of discussions about uh, the relationship between different confessional communities within Christianity and maybe also the status of the Jews in Western Europe rather than toleration within the context of the Ottoman Empire. And do you have some views to those who are more familiar with that kind of language, the toleration in the spirit of Locke, as it were? Um, yes, how should yes, they interpret this? And in, in that, you know, those who are who are trained in that kind of tradition, I guess, um, how can they understand this kind of in a more granular light, the evolution of this term? Right. Well, um, in European history, we tend to look at the history of tolerance from a West European perspective, and we look at the wars of religion. We look at the end of the wars of religion. We look at the Treaty of Westphalia, and we trace it through the Enlightenment and so on. But if we broaden our understanding of Europe and of, well, of, if, if we include Islamic empires, such as the Ottomans, whose capital was in Europe, was in Istanbul, Constantinople, if we broaden our understanding of Europe and include the Ottomans, then we could push back tolerance to an earlier beginning. Again, while at the same time remembering that tolerance is a power relation, right? It's not equality. But if we think of tolerance in that sense, then Islamic societies, Islamic majority, uh, Muslim majority societies, such as the Ottomans, introduced tolerance to Europe already in the 14th century. So already in the 14th century, in southeastern Europe, the Ottomans found a way, based on Mongolian and Islamic precedent, to tolerate diversity, or difference, let's say difference instead of diversity. So they already figured out how to allow a number of different religious groups to live together so long as the, the hierarchy was enforced. So, um, so in a way, we can take what Locke was saying and we could, we could apply it to 300 years earlier and look at Islamic Southeastern Europe and see that these processes had already begun under the Ottomans. Uh, that's interesting. It also suggests that not only do we need this kind of cultural difference or understanding the, the, maybe the cultural difference in terms of this Western and um, a more global idea of tolerance, but also seeing tolerance in a imperial, maybe even post-colonial perspective. I mean, what is your view on sort of recent debates on understanding the Turkish context and the Ottoman context in the, in the post-colonial light? Well, again, um, I was trained in early modern history, also early modern England, and I always wondered why were we only talking about tolerance in early modern England when it had begun so much earlier in southeastern Europe. So, um, so that, that question of how can different religions um, be allowed to exist in the same city, how do they manage difference, how do different groups, how are different groups allowed to live according to their own religious um, rules and have their own law courts and so on. And again, the problem is is that there's, these are two very different historiographies and academic and public discussions that are going on. So on the one hand, you have European history and debates in Europe about tolerance that only look at Western European history. And then you have, in, the, in Islamic history, you have a long discussion of tolerating Christians and Jews within Islamic societies, but without a critical, the critical element of understanding that it's a power relation. And these two uh, discussions, these two discourses never meet in any way. Um, and so that's something that I, I'm, I'm trying to do in my, in my forthcoming book, which is a history of the Ottoman dynasty, 600-year history of, of the Ottoman Empire, in which I try to draw a broad canvas that links London to Baghdad and everything in between and look at these different processes of enlightenment, of renaissance, of age of exploration, uh, the scientific revolution, you name it, tolerance, genocide, place them all together and look at how they're all often feeding from east to west. I just wanted to, to link back to your project on the dynasty. And, and I'm wondering if one compares the power of uh, a dynastic ruler from the Osman dynasty to somebody like the power of a president like Erdogan today, is there a difference in the way in which... Um, the construction of a kind of plural or multi-ethnic or however else one defines it, society, is kind of more useful for a dynasty than it is for a president? So, I mean, would you say that the structure of power of a modern national president is better suited by a kind of more homogeneous or supposedly more homogeneous 
sort of ethnos, whereas like an empire, like, I don't know, I'm thinking of the Habsburg Empire, it seemed to have the capacity to survive because of the dynasty's ability to absorb the sort of these different groups or something. That's, that's just sort of one speculation, but... In answer to your question, it also goes back to comparing Mehmed II and, and Erdogan. And again, what's important is, is thinking about how Erdogan is depicting Mehmed II. I mean, for Erdogan, Mehmed II is this Turk on a horse who takes this city, which certainly Mehmed II was a very successful military and political leader. He did conquer, conquer vast amounts of territory in southeastern Europe um, during his very long, his 30-year reign. But Erdogan's vision of Ottoman history is one shaped by Turkish Islamists and the Turkish far right, um, three or four of whom he quoted um, in his speech the other night. These are, these are far right or Islamist figures from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So he's, so he's returning to that period of time. But if we think about Mehmed II as a historical figure, we'll, we'll, we realize how much more interesting and complex a person he was. When he entered Constantinople after letting his troops rape and pillage for one day, Mehmed wept. So this was, I mean, this wasn't some proud, boastful uh, person like Erdogan. This was a 21-year-old man who, who saw the conquest of a great city as actually a melancholy moment. And he asked, and his historians record, he asked, what have we done to this glorious city? Right? So it's, so it's not so simple as just they, they, you know, they conquer the city and, that's, and everyone should be proud. Mehmed II, it's also not remembered at all, that he did not seek to remake Constantinople as a purely Muslim city. He repopulated it with Muslims, Christians, and Jews from throughout his empire. And then he and his successors, contrary to Islamic law and custom, allowed the rebuilding of churches and synagogues damaged or destroyed during the siege and conquest. He also permitted Jews to build new synagogues, and he allowed Christians to build new churches. This is, this is something that we don't see in Turkey today. Uh, Constantinople was taken by conquest, of course, not by the city leaders did not surrender. In that situation, in that period of history, as occurred in Thessaloniki, uh, Salonika, the defenders, the Greeks, should have been exiled and forbidden to reside in the city. That's how um, the Ottomans could have acted that way. Mehmed II could have, but instead, he didn't do that. Instead, he restored the Greek Orthodox Church, and he became as if a Byzantine emperor. He was the one who appointed its patriarch and all of its officials. Uh, he did not cover up all the frescoes and mosaics within this newly converted imperial mosque, Hagia Sophia, and it's curious to see what they'll do before they reopen it. In fact, winged angels with mysterious faces soared above the Muslims as they prayed for centuries. Mehmed II was a, was a figure who Erdogan wouldn't recognize today because he has his vision, his Islamist fascist vision of, of Ottoman history. Mehmed II wrote love poems to Greek youth, and we have his poetry. He surrounded himself with Greek advisors, uh, civil military leaders, some of whom converted, but some of them uh, did not convert to Islam. They remained Christians as they served him. He institutionalized a system of, of recruitment of Christian boys who were converted and became, as I mentioned, the leaders of the empire, of the, um, the leaders in the military administration. And Christian girls were also recruited to be the leading ladies of the dynasty. So this is something, if we talk about pluralism today, this is not something we see in today's Turkey. Uh, Erdogan does not have Christian uh, is not surrounded by Christian advisors or what have you. Um, Mehmed II was a Renaissance man. Uh, his portrait is in the Renaissance rooms of the Victoria and Albert Museum uh, here in London. He imbibed the wisdom of East and West, ancient and contemporary. He called himself Caesar. So he saw himself as heir of the Romans. What, what happens when we only include his Muslim credentials, when we only see him as a conqueror and a convert, converter of, of churches, which he was, um, when we label the conversion of Hagia Sophia as a symbol of conquest, then we're presenting only a partial image of this historical figure. Mehmed II saw himself as a unifier of East and West, a universal ruler, bringing together Muslim and Christian in his empire and in his own Greek-speaking person.
so Erdogan in a way is reducing, you know, a very complex figure, a character that belongs to a different historical context to a caricature to serve his own political purposes. And on that, I wanted to ask you, Mark, what do you make of this particular timing of this decision? The timing is, is, is interesting because a year ago, Erdogan said he would not convert the church. Um, and he said a year ago, if, if I were to convert, the, what I mean is, would I um, you know, make Hagia Sophia a mosque again? If I were to do that, they would harm our interest in, in Europe. So anytime German Muslims, German Turks apply for permission to build a mosque, he says this would, this would harm them. So that was a year ago. So what has happened in the past year? The economy is in crisis, um, despite what his advisor um, says on TV. The, the economy is in, in dreadful shape. The exchange rate is terrible. People have lost half their life savings. That's part of it. But also, um, his, his, weight, you know, his, his, his aims for Syria um, have gone nowhere. His, his, he, you know, earlier he said he would overthrow Assad. That never happened. Also, he's trying to now wage uh, a war in Libya. This is also going to be... Um, going to be a problem. So in this situation, he also is waging a war against, as I mentioned, against Kurds in the country. He's um, waging a war against all of his critics. He's facing a lot of opposition because of economic issues. He's also facing the fact that many of the opposition parties, elected mayors in the big cities are more popular than he is. Um, so what can he do? What can he do? He has given up on half the population. Recently, he has said he is the leader of the 50 million of Turkey. Turkey actually has a population of 80 million. He's given up on the secularists, the 30 million. So he is speaking to his Islamist and far-right um, base, and he's doing this, um, such, he's taking such symbolic moves um, as a way to distract from the economic and, and, and political crises of the day and to um, just, you know, make your every man on the street, your every man Muslim and far-rightist on the street feel proud about something. The, the decision to, ten, to convert Hagia Sophia into a mosque is also a legal decision. And there is speculation that it opens a broader legal question to do with endowments Vakufs and the repurposing of various different kinds of endowments that go back into the centuries. I was wondering if you have any thoughts on that, on the legal aspect of, as it were, this decision. Well, right. It's it's quite a, it's quite a uh, significant decision because what he's saying is that a, a decision taken by the the ministers of state in 1934 um, is invalid. That decision is invalid because it contradicts the the endowment document of this. Medieval mosque, and that's that's a that's a that's a astounding um, decision. So now, well, they've already reconverted three other very famous, very well-known church mosques, um, but they didn't receive much attention in the international media. The the main the Hagia Sophia in Trabzon, his hometown, they reconverted that to a mosque, uh, and also the beautiful. Um, what in Turkish is called Kariya Jami, that the Church of um, the, uh, Our Lady of Kora, which is in um, near the eastern land walls of Istanbul, with incredible frescoes, they've converted that back into a mosque too. So this decision um, is profound, and it can be used to change not just decisions regarding property and churches and synagogues, but also decisions taken by um, by previous administrations too um, which is which is a pretty you know it opens a huge as you mentioned a huge legal legal dilemma dilemma and for people who have ancient endowments and the question is what is it going to do next was this just a one-off symbolic move to to rally his base uh, at, a, at a very low moment in his popularity or now is he really going to go after the Ataturk legacy. What is he going to do to Ataturk's mausoleum in Ankara? Will he do something to that? Um, what will he do to the church in Taksim? He already is building a large mosque there. What about the large church there? 
um, will he do something to it? it? It's always been a church. It hasn't been, it wasn't a mosque. But anything is, anything, um, is possible now. You've mentioned the kind of the turn towards the right within Turkey and its sort of claims to former Ottoman lands in terms of global power politics and Syria and other former Ottoman uh, territories. But I'm also wondering about the kind of Christian or post-secular sort of parts of Europe that, um, you know, used to have derived their identity from being this um, antemorale Christianitatis and the sort of frontier that protects uh, sort of Europe, European heritage from the Ottoman invasion. So I'm talking about... Um, the period that, um, you know, when Mehmed IV expands into Crete, Hungary, Ukraine, even mod what is modern Ukraine, and sort of these different uh, communities develop this, these sort of concepts. Um, and of course, there are sort of right-wing movements, right-wing parties emerging, for example, in contemporary Poland, um, but I'm also talking about Russia, for instance, which develops this kind of agenda of being um, Europe's kind of protector against Muslim invasions or whatever one might call it. Um, do you think this decision will kind of reactivate these tendencies in these societies? I don't know, I don't want to call them Christian necessarily, but Christian secularized, however one might define them. Well, yes, uh, this, this would not have been the case in you know, the early 2000s, right? In the early 2000s when East European countries were joining the EU and when Erdogan himself his first five years in power um, was supported by liberals and supported by the Kurds and was promoting new freedoms, new religious freedoms for Turkish people of all religions. Um, this would not be the case 20 years ago. But as you mentioned, politics have turned to the right around the world. We see this populist movements. Um, Putin calls himself the defender of Christ the Christian faith. Um, you also see this in Hungary. And so now Erdogan is also speaking this language. He's been for a few years. These kind of authoritarian leaders thrive on each other and on these threats and these imaginary threats. And so he's he's speaking to the West. I mean, this, this was also not only to shore up his support on the right in his own country, but also really, this is really the final nail in the coffin saying that Turkey does not want to be part of the EU. Of course, in the early 2000s, Erdogan did, and his regime did everything they could to join the EU. They did change hundreds of laws. And in that period, there was a, a process begun. The EU and Turkey were talking about membership. Um, but at a certain point, of course, both the EU turned against Turkey because of its human rights violations and, um, and unwillingness to change in certain, certain aspects. But also at a certain point, Erdogan and his supporters also determined that they didn't need Europe or want Europe. So this is the last nail in the coffin of that. Or maybe even it's just the, you know, it's just, it's, it's the last gesture, the last rude gesture saying, we're going to go our way, you go your way. We're Muslims, we care about Muslims, you're imperialists, and um, uh, too bad. It's also interesting that the, at the end of his speech, he also talked about liberating Al-Aqsa Mosque. So the third audience that he has is not only... Uh, in it, within his country and also the EU, but he's also is speaking to Muslims around the world, and he's also saying um, we've liberated Hagia Sophia. In other words, we've opened up to Muslim worshippers again, and we are going to. Um, uh, well, what is he going to do? That's the question. Um, but um, but what he's saying is that he's opposed to Israel's um, control of the Muslim holy sites in Jerusalem. And he sees Israel as illegitimate, and um, he's um, trying to also increase his already strong amount of support he has in the Arabic-speaking world because of his constant criticism of Israel. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, looking at um, at Israel and the administration of holy sites there, that there are a number of different examples there. There's obviously the kind of uh, contested site of the destroyed temple and the the Wailing Wall on one side, the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the other, but there's also the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is, um, as far as I know, is the key to that is still held by a Muslim family, I think, um, as it was still under the Ottomans. So, um, I mean, I'm not saying that the um, that these disputes offer any kind of uh, examples for the resolution of international heritage, but that is one particular uh, site, which is actually, which does seem to have a successful kind of management. Interconfessional. Would would you say that that's that's a good example for 
Well, I would just say in the, in the, in the Istanbul case, the Hagia Sophia case, if we're going to open it up as a house of worship again, um, I, I, I'm not opposed to that. But then why not let Christians pray there um, as well? This wouldn't be so hard to do if there was a will to do it. You have the, you have the, you know, you, you could allow Christians to pray there on Sunday. You could allow Muslims, of course, to have their congregational um, public, you know, um, prayers there on Friday. You could certainly do that, but it has, but it's a political question. Thanks a lot for your time, Mark. interesting to me as someone who studies you know, British perceptions of the Ottoman Empire in the late 19th century and also as someone who's uh, from Greece and is familiar with Greek nationalism and also Greek visions of empire in the turn of the century that uh, place Hagia Sophia uh, kind of uh, at a focal point uh, is how in this instance Erdogan is using a, a monument, and B, a certain historical narrative of what the uh, Ottoman Empire was to justify uh, a controversial political decision that seems to be addressed to his internal audience. Although Mark raised the point that decision may have a broader appeal. However, at the same time, uh, Jamil was not really convinced that the rationale behind this decision appeals to a, broadly speaking, some kind of Muslim world. He thought of it rather as a reaction uh, intended to solidify a certain internal audience. What I understood from Mark is that uh, it's also valid to see it as, as sort of Erdogan's claim to, to global power politics and sort of Turkish role in the former Ottoman lands and so on. And um, at that level, the question is whether at that second level um, it will it will have this effect um, at all, or if it will just be um, unnecessarily, in a sense, kind of upsetting various international groups that actually weren't the intended audience in the first place for this for this act or this intervention. If one looks at the debate right now, we see a very regimented, monolithic view of an act of barbarism uh, in a vocabulary that is pretty much similar to the late 19th century European visions of the Ottoman Empire as simply a space of barbarism and, uh, you know, and, and, and Muslim uh, aggression. Yes, well, I suppose, uh, I mean, you've alluded in the conversation already to this um attempt to understand it as a legal incident as well. And, and I suppose the powerlessness of the current discourse is also from, comes from the fact that any legal understanding seems to be rooted in liberal notions. So we, we think of legitimate um, acts um, as acts rooted in a kind of legal decision that's linked to some kind of property claim validated by states somehow, private property. And whereas here we're dealing with much more complex um, Relations and the question is whether legitimacy and legality, in that sense, um, need to be maybe kind of separated and historicized more. I mean, okay, I'm a kind of secular person coming from Soviet, post-Soviet Russia, whatever, and um, but I also have, you know, uh, my my grandfather is from Azerbaijan, so I have this kind of multiple hats on as well, I guess, in reading this this incident. That at one level, um, so for for say my grandfather's generation, Turkey is a kind of modern modernizing nation which dealt with which provided a certain model for a modern kind of um, secular Muslim identity um, but at the same time um, there's also this question of um, well actually okay what's the role of this heritage of modernity in the in the current world where various groups are calling various aspects of that modernity itself into question so there's the crisis of liberalism um, legitimacy. On the other hand, these kind of new authoritarian regimes are actually using kind of democratic elements to, to forge consent. So 
um, I don't know, I'm, I'm interested in it simply also as a technical case study, really, for understanding various complicated crises of different established ideologies, whether it's modernity or liberalism or east-west boundaries. Uh, it seems to be a good example of the breakdown of familiar plots for understanding um, how the front lines between these ideologies actually lie. Yes, I would add the breakdown of, of familial plots, but also the reinforcement of quite stereotypical ideas about you know, what Turkey is, about what, what is the role of uh, Christianity, um, uh, Muslim, Muslim religion, etc. So on the one end, this case study reflects you know, the, the breaking point of, what, of all these things you've mentioned, but at the same time, it becomes a springboard where very familiar and to some extent very cliche narratives are being reproduced. But maybe that's the thing. I mean, that's that's a really interesting point, right? In these kind of disorienting moments, people are struggle to find bearings again, and they're looking for these narratives. They're looking, what is the ultimate layer? What's the ultimate fresco that will tell us what this actually belongs to, or what is the real heritage? Is it the number of years that it belonged to a certain community, or is it uh, the beauty of its fresco or its inscription that will give it the right to kind of claim this or the number of tourists who frequented. We, we seem to want some kind of definitive answer in a way almost. And this concludes the third um, in our series of discussions on crises over symbolic spaces and representations of power through monuments uh, or public buildings. Thanks to our guests, Jamil Aydin and Mark Baer, and uh, thanks for listening.